Now, we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 1 today. We had our introduction last week. If you were not here last week, for the introduction to the book of Hebrews, you must somehow attain a copy of that. Either uh, get the CD or the DVD or go online and download it for free or go to iTunes and get the podcast or the video cast. Somehow, you must get a copy of that message if you weren't here last week. It's very important for your understanding of the book of Hebrews. We're going to get into Hebrews chapter 1 today, but we're not even going to cover a whole sentence in the text. Hebrews chapter 1 is going to take us a while. It's so rich and thick and meaty concerning the person of Jesus Christ, it's going to take us a little while to get through it, a couple months perhaps. We're not in a hurry, right? We're just waiting for the rapture of the church. We're in no hurry. We're just waiting on Jesus, so we might as well dig into his word deep. So we're going to be in it for a little while, but let's read half of a sentence, starting in uh, (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is in front of us, and we really do thank you for it. We say that every week after we read it, but we hope that for us it's not a routine, and it's not lip service. We really do thank you for the wonderful word of God. And we thank you for this fresh season where you've got us huddled around the book of Hebrews. Holy Spirit, would you take us further, deeper, deeper into the heart of God. We know that to go deeper into the heart of God, we've got to go deeper in the word of God. And so we're going to, according to our own volition now, commit ourselves to a serious study of your word. And we ask the Holy Spirit you would teach us because Jesus said about you, Holy Spirit, that you're the teacher of all things. Never said I was. He said you were. So we ask that you would just override me and that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us through this book of Hebrews. You give us great insight and understanding into the person of Jesus Christ and the beautiful heart of our Father. Do a work in us in your word. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now call to mind our context from last week. It's very important, our context from last week. We have as the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews some Hebrew Jewish Christians. We're not sure of their exact location, but there's good reason to believe they may be in Rome. But they're gathered together, and here's their immediate context. Their brothers by blood, the Jews, have forsaken them because they chose to follow after Yeshua as Mashiach, Jesus as Messiah. And so Israel is considering them abandoners of the nation and the faith. So these Hebrew Christians, their brothers by blood have rejected them. And then the people around them, the Romans, are now pursuing them because under the persecution of Nero, Emperor Nero, Christianity has become a capital offense, an illegal religion. And at this time, Christians were beginning to die at the hands of Nero in brutal and unthinkable ways. And beyond that, there's war that is escalating. The war between Israel and Rome, as we know of the Jewish revolt in 66, uh, AD 66, which would revolt in the destruction of, or result in the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in AD 70. So their brothers by blood have forsaken them. Their religion has become 
illegal in the Roman world and punishable by death. War is escalating in their homeland and the prospect of them spilling their own blood for their faith seems now tangible, immediate, imminent. They're huddled around a small group of them and it seems imminent to them in their context that they will probably spill blood for their faith in Jesus Christ, their own blood. And then this letter arrives and they would unroll the scroll and they encounter that first glorious word, which is God. Now, in the original, the Greek, God is not the first word in the sentence. It starts with two adverbs that we'll speak about in a few minutes. But God is the subject of the sentence nonetheless. And for reasons of style and alliteration and beautiful use of Greek language, the author put first these adverbs starting in the same letters. But the subject of the sentence, the thrust of the sentence is the person of God. And so in their context of turmoil and uncertainty, when they unroll the scroll, the first thing they encounter is God himself. And in an instant and in a word, everything is put into perspective, amen? In an instant and in a word, everything is put into perspective at that word, that subject, God. Because for them, there were so many unknowns that they were facing. So many things that were uncertain and unclear. And here's a principle. When faced with what you don't know, fall back on what you do know. That's good for life. When faced with what you don't know, fall back on what you do know. When things are uncertain, return to those things that are certain. Now, what do we know about God that would have been a comfort to these Hebrew Christians in the first century and is a comfort to us today? When they read that word, God, after unrolling the scroll, what sort of connotations came to mind? Well, the first thing that came to the Hebrew minds was this, God is good. A foundational truth in scriptures and for Israel. Psalm 73 verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. They immediately would have thought of that fact. Okay, things are unclear and uncertain and frightening for us, but God is good. And they also would have understood that God is faithful. They knew that, being Hebrews. They also would have thought of the fact that God is in control and that God is able. And when they thought about God, they thought about God as being on the throne. God on the throne, Isaiah chapter 6 maybe came to mind for them. And that would denote for them the sovereignty of God, which would speak to them the omniscience of God, that he is all-knowing, the omnipotence of God, that he is all-powerful, and the fact that he is omnipresent at all places at all times. And they would have thought about the fact that God is just, and yet merciful, and that God is love. And the book to these Hebrew Christians starts with the subject of God, as does the entire book. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. For these Hebrew Christians who were well acquainted with the Old Testament, when the word God was read or said, it brought to mind all those things because, 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 because. Because they had a vast understanding from which to draw concerning who God is. Because they had a handle on the Old Testament. 
They had an understanding from which to draw in difficult times concerning the character of God because they knew the scriptures. There were these connotations when they heard the word God. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just a couple books prior to Hebrews. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 specifically. But I want us to catch the context. So we're going to start reading 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Where it says, But know this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy. They will be unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, and haters of good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness or religion, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. So Paul, when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, lets him know what the future holds. Difficult times. Humanity continuing in rebellion to God and getting further and further away from the character of God. And then he says in verse 12, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, look at me. Paul the Apostle writing to Timothy relates to him that he will be dealing with a context very much like the Hebrews were dealing with in the immediate context of the epistle to the Hebrews, which is very much like the context in which we are in. The last days, when people are rejecting God and in rebellion to God, lovers of pleasure rather than God, denying the power of the person of Christ. And the persecution would abound for those who really want to live with Jesus Christ. That's the truth you need to deal with. All who desire to live godly will experience persecution, he said in verse 12. And then he said, evil men will go from worse to worse and deception will abound. And after painting such a rosy picture, the apostle Paul says to Timothy, here's what you do about it. Notice verse 14. You, however, point of contrast, you, however, here's what you do, Timothy, Here's what you do, Christian, in light of the world in which we are living. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice what the protocol is for Christians in difficult times. Notice what the modus operandi is for the people of God who are living in a world that is opposition, in opposition to God. The way that we are to proceed is to continue in the things that you have learned. To continue on in them. To press on. To persevere. To maintain the course. And what does it mean to continue in the things you've learned? It means falling back on, leaning on, and acting upon the truths of the word of God. To continue in them means to fall 
back on, lean on, and act upon those truths. Now, Timothy, as did the Hebrew Christians that are being addressed in the book of Hebrews, had the truth of Scripture, and so subsequently the character of God to fall back on, to lean on, and to act upon in difficult times. Because they knew the scriptures, they knew the character of God, and so they had something solid, real, tangible, infinite to fall back on, lean on, and act upon in difficult times. Now, Christian, that is where you want to live. You want to live in that place where you've been handling the word of God And so you know the character of God so that when difficult times come, you've got something to fall back on, lean on, and act upon. Because there will be horrible times in this life. There's just no way around it. There will be terrifying, even overwhelming times in this lifetime. Jesus did not lie to us. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world, he said. And so where you want to live, where we want to live as Christians, is we want to have the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, as it says in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. We want to have the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, richly. Now, some Christians don't have the word of Christ dwelling in them at all. They have the person of Christ in them or they want to be a Christian. They've been born again to be sure. But they have not let the word of God penetrate and permeate their lives. And so because of that, they find that their souls are in lean condition. Their souls are emaciated, not properly nourished. They haven't been feasting on the meat and the milk of the word of God. And so when difficult times come, they don't have anything real to fall back on. Nothing solid to lean on. No real truths to act upon. And so they begin to waver in their faith. They they begin to stumble in their faith. They begin to second guess and they become unstable in all their ways, as it says in the book of James. Why? Because their souls are lean. We want to live in the place of fat and fatness, as the old King James says in the Old Testament. Fat and fatness. We want our souls to be fat with the things of God. We want the word of Christ to be dwelling richly in us. These Hebrew Christians did. And so in the face of the very real possibility, the tangible reality of them losing their lives for their faith, they were able to fall back on the character of God and draw great comfort from just the first few words of the first sentence of the scroll. Now, Timothy here, Paul alludes to, had grown up with the teachings of the scripture. Many of you didn't grow up in a house where the Bible was taught. You didn't have that opportunity. You didn't have that privilege. But you have a Bible now and you're an adult. You may have missed that privilege previously, but now that privilege has become a responsibility. For the adult Christian who has the word of God, it has become a responsibility for you to know it. I'm going to put something on you this morning. 
Turn back one chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Look at this verse. It's been one of the most important verses in my life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 reads in the New American Standard, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed but handles accurately the word of truth. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. Be diligent, it says. It can be translated various ways from the original. The NCV version says, make every effort. The NIV and the CEV say, do your best. The New Living Translation says, work hard. And the Old King James says, study. Study to show thyself approved, it says. Either way you translate it, this passage in its first word denotes for you and I hard work, doesn't it? When it comes to the Word of God, we are to be a working people. When it comes to the Word of God, we are to be a working people. We're to be diligent when it comes to the Word of God. We're to make every effort. We're to do our best. We're to work hard and we're to study. That's what the Word of God says for you and I. And then what does it say? The second part. To present yourself approved to God. Therein, that phrase, lies the concept of accountability. That we are accountable to God for what we do with His Word. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. And we've been given the word, and we've been given it in abundance. To whom much is given, much will be required. We are accountable before God for what we do with his word. We are to present ourselves before him. Notice what it says, approved before him. The Christian that works hard in the word of God is approved before God. And then it says, as a workman. There's that work thing again. When it comes to the word of God, we are to be workmen. And then it says, who does not need to be ashamed. That tells us that there's a sense of shame for the Christian who ignores the word of God. There is a degree of shame, not condemnation, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who, those who are in Christ Jesus. How do I know that? Because I know the Bible. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Not condemnation, but a degree of shame to those who have been given the very word of God and let it sit upon the shelf. The protocol for the Christian living in these last days is to be a workman who does his best, presents himself before God. He doesn't therefore need to be ashamed, but rather the last phrase, he handles accurately the word of truth. We're to be handling the word of God. Your little fingers should be used to moving through these pages. Your little eyes should be used to scanning to and fro. The Bible of a man and woman of God living in these last days ought to be worn in every way. There's no way around it. I didn't make this up. I'm not putting any burden upon you that the word of God is not laid out for us. Be diligent, make every effort, do your best, work hard, study to show thyself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed because he handles accurately the word of truth. 
And so the question then is posed. Have you positioned yourself in such a way that your life is being permeated with the word of God? Have you so ordered your life that the word of God is a priority for you and to you? That the word of Christ is beginning to dwell richly in you. The more the word is coming in and the things of the world are going out. Have you, because no one's going to do it for you. And I got to tell you, church just doesn't cut it in the last days. If this is all you get of the word of God is my one hour of screaming, you're not getting enough. There comes a time in the life of every Christian where they themselves must become a student, a workman in the word of God. Have you positioned yourself in such a way with regards to the word that you can fall back on its truths in difficult times? Because they're coming. Those times are coming. Can you fall back on the character of God because you know the word of God? Now, there is going to be times in life where we feel everything but dead, isn't there? Even for the Christian that's been born again is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's times where you're just plain bummed out. I mean, admit it, what? I'm the only one? There's times where you just feel, oh, the weight and the pressure and just the drudgery. There's times where you're like, I don't even want to get out of bed today or ever again. There's times where we just feel like death. Now, what, 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 what needs to happen to someone who's dead and is not supposed to be? They need to be revived. They need to be revived. They need to be brought back to life. Now, God is a life giver. He's a life giver. But how is that life appropriated to us? How do we already being Christians and the daily ups and downs and difficulties and trials and tumults, how do we appropriate the life of God given by the Spirit of God to us? I mean, you wake up in the morning and you just don't feel good. What do you do? How can you be revived? I want you to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, please. Psalm 119, how does God himself say that we can be revived when that is what is required? Psalm 119, look in verse 25. Verse 25, my soul cleaves to the dust. Stop right there. Can anybody relate to the brother? <laughs> my soul cleaves to the dust. He says, I just feel like dirt. Anybody know what he's talking about? Just dirt. What needs to happen? The man needs to be revived. Now look how God says that happens. Next phrase. Revive me according to thy word. The word of God is how the life of God is appropriated in the person of God. It's in the word of God. Look in verse 37. The psalmist writes in verse 37, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. Revive me in thy ways. How do we experience and know and lay hold of the ways of God only through the word of God? Look now at verse 40. 
Behold, I long for thy precepts. Revive me through thy righteousness. His righteousness is seen in the word of God. And, and what the psalmist says here was, I long for thy precepts. Therefore, I can expect your revival, God. Let me just ask you, because I pray this for us as a church almost daily, that we would long for the truth of God, that we would have an insatiable hunger in the very depth of our beings for the truth of God, the precepts of God, and the word of God. We pray this for us. I tell you as a brother that if you are a Christian and you are not hungry for the word of God, something has gone awry in your heart. As a brother, if you're not hungry at this moment for the word of God, something has gone awry in your heart. What do you do? Well, number one, you probably need to repent of something. Probably something getting in the way that shouldn't be there. Number two, then, you just start to pray, Lord, give me a hunger for your truth. Now, sometimes what helps us is to just shut up all the voices of the world, all the media, all the input, all this stuff. Sometimes you just got to shut it up and shut it off for a little while. Let there be a little void now and say, Lord, give me a hunger for your word. I tell you, God will always answer that prayer. Look now in verse 88. Psalm 119, verse 88. Revive me according to thy loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of thy mouth. There we see the word of God and our acting upon it associated with revival of the spirit. Look in verse 107. Verse 107, the psalmist says, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me. O Lord, according to thy word. Psalm 149, or verse 149 of Psalm 119, verse 149. Hear my voice according to thy loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to thine ordinances. And verse 159, look what the psalmist says. Consider how I love thy precepts. You love the word of God. Revive me, O Lord, according to thy righteousness. Do you not see that as the Hebrew Christians had a rich understanding of the scriptures available to them, and so when they unrolled the scroll and heard the word of God, there immediately came to mind the attributes of God, that they then had something solid and tangible and real and eternal to lean on, to fall back on, to act upon. Timothy had the same thing. Do you not understand that this is where we must live? Where the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us, there must come a time where you yourself are a workman in the word of God. And in that comes revival. Everybody talking about revival. Need revival in the church. Oh, revival here, revival there. When's revival going to happen? The word of God. Turning now to our original text and thought. Stay right here. I'll put the text up on the PowerPoint for you. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, okay? And the thought was, these frightened Hebrew Christians opened up this letter and were immediately reminded of God. Now, that's a nice design in this letter. Did you ever notice how all the other epistles or letters in the New Testament have all these preferatory, preferatory salutations? 
All these hellos and introductions. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle according to the will of God for Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to you, the church in Galatia. Or hi, I'm Peter. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to the churches in Asia Minor. And Paul would say, oh, I got Timothy with me and this and that and the other. None of that is present in this letter. Because the situation was so dire. I mean, they were really gathered around expecting to spill their blood. Really difficult times. And so it just opens up with a couple of adverbs and then reveals the subject to the sentence, God. And besides just being reminded of those attributes that he's good, faithful, in control, able, on the throne, sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, merciful, and that he is love. Besides that, what we are reminded of immediately through the text is that this wonderful God speaks to humanity. This wonderful God, who's some of his attributes we just named, this God speaks to humanity. Notice what it said in Hebrews 1.1. In many portions and in many ways, in times past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. In many portions and in many ways. Now, in many portions, translated in the English Bible, it's just one word in the Greek. It's an adverb. In many ways is another adverb. And they don't have perfect uh, English equivalents. It can be translated variously. It can be translated like this, portion by portion, or bit by bit in many different ways, piece by piece in various manners, bit by bit, portion by portion, piece by piece in various ways and manners. The force intended is that God speaking in the past has been diverse in geographical location and in the method of disclosure. God has communicated to humanity through visions, right? Through dreams, through symbols in the Old Testament, through the Urim and Thummim, through angels, through natural events, through the column of smoke or fire in the wilderness. And occasionally God has communicated to humanity face to face. And various times and places. These revelations appear to different people at different periods of history. They happen in Ur of the Chaldees, in Haran, in Canaan, in the wilderness of Egypt, and in Babylon. What becomes very apparent from the text is this, that this wonderful God has gone to great lengths to communicate and reveal his amazing love to humanity. The Bible declares, reminds these Hebrew Christians that God has spoken to the fathers in many different ways, bit by bit, piece by piece. Now, to help us understand this, when it comes to God's communication or revelation to humanity, there are, theologically speaking, two categories that we need to be aware of today. Number one, general revelation. And number two, special revelation. General revelation is the revelation of God in creation. Turn to Psalm 19 now. Just turn back 100 Psalms. Psalm 19. There's a whole lot of places in the Bible that talk about general revelation, God being revealed in creation. But this is a cool one. Psalm 19, first few verses. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because it communicates well on this passage and we'll put it on the PowerPoint for you. Verse one. The heavens tell of the glory of God. They tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. 
Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, yet their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. So there we have an example of the declaration of general revelation. It says that to look into the sky is to see the evidence of the infinite power, wisdom, and beauty of God. It is to observe a majestic witness, note the word, it is to observe a majestic witness of the glory of God. Creation is a witness of who God is and the fact that God exists. Do you remember in Acts chapter 14? In Acts chapter 14, there was a man who was lame and uh, Paul was hanging out with Barnabas before they had their little tiff. Paul and Barnabas are hanging out and uh, the man is lame and Paul just rolls up and says, you know what, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this guy is healed. And because of such, that community began to think that Paul and Barnabas were gods. In fact, they thought that they were Hermes and Zeus. We would say Hermes, Hermes and Zeus. That's who they thought Paul and Barnabas were. And so it says in verse 14 of Acts 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, tearing their robes, a sign of just rejecting that idea and of mourning the thought that they would ever be esteemed as gods. They run into the crowd crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things, these false gods, Hermes and Zeus, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, now he gives them a little teaching. In the generations gone by, God permitted all nations to go their own ways. And yet, he did not leave himself without a witness, note the word, and that he did good, here's the witness, God did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul here says to these in that community that it is a witness to the existence and the person of God that he has given rains to the nations, fruitful seasons to the nations, food has been produced from the earth, and even gladness in people's hearts. All of these bear witness, note the word, all of these bear witness to the fact that their creator God is a God of mercy, of love, and even joy. And that's just seen through creation. It's called general revelation. Now, these evidences of God are all around and can be easily seen by those who are willing to see them. But we know that some are unwilling, don't we? You can stand on the beach here in Carpinteria, California, at sunset, shoulder to shoulder with somebody, and just the most incredible sunset you've ever seen. And in your little Christian heart, you go, wow, my God is awesome. My dad made that, man. Check that out. What, how beautiful is that? What an imaginative, awesome God we have. And later on that evening, you could look up and you could see the stars and go, wow, how great is our God that he just, he just breathed these things to existence. I mean, how incredible is our God? And that person is saying, what are you talking about, man? The sunset, that's just gases. 
And the light of the sun just reflat, refracting and reflecting. Ain't nothing God about that. And those are just rocks floating around in the sky. What are you talking about? And you see the same thing. And one person sees God clearly revealed, and another chooses not to. Notice, because I chose my words very carefully. I said the other chooses not to see God in those things. Because here's what the scriptures declare in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. No. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not they don't know the truth or they can't understand it or they haven't seen it. But they suppress it in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened and professing to be wise, and they do, don't they? Professing to be wise, they became fools. This passage this is very important theologically and practically for you. This passage allows us to say that all persons, even the most wicked, have some internal knowledge and perception that God exists and that he's a powerful creator. The word of God allows us to say with absoluteness that every person, no matter how wicked, has an inter internal knowledge and perception that God exists and that he's a powerful creator. The psalmist said in two different places, only the fool says in his heart there is no God. But beyond just being able to discern the existence of God and some of his attributes through general revelation, humanity can also know something of God's moral character through general revelation. We look at creation and it tells us God exists God is powerful. But there's another aspect of general revelation that allows humanity to discern the moral character of God. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. When Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, the law was given to the Jews. God's moral code was given first to the Jews. A Gentile is a non-Jew. So the writer of Hebrews is saying throughout history, when someone who didn't have the written law, even as Israel had. When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness, note the word, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Look what the Bible says. Not only is God revealed through creation, 
The fact that he exists and is powerful, but, but his moral aptitude, his moral character is discerned through the conscience that every person has been given. The law of God, God's moral standard has been written on the heart of all humanity. Now, the conscience can be seared and the conscience can be perverted and hearts can be hardened. But nevertheless, there is the seed put in every person of the moral character of God. This truth, that general revelation reveals God's moral character, should dramatically increase our confidence in being a witness, note the word, for God. That truth, that general revelation reveals to humanity God's moral character is a tremendous encouragement to you and I who seek to be witnesses for God. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology comments, he says, the knowledge of God's existence and character provides a basis of information that enables the gospel to make sense to a non-Christian's heart and mind. Unbelievers know that God exists and that they have broken his standards. So the news that Christ died to pay for their sins should truly come as good news to them. Take that to the bank when you're sharing Jesus Christ with people. And the church has come up with all sorts of neat and cute ways to market the gospel. All sorts of repackaging and contextualizing and reframing and acting out and this and that and so on and so forth. But general revelation dictates that every single person knows they're a sinner. Some may be harder than others. God's moral character is revealed through their conscience that he gave them. So the gospel makes sense all of a sudden because God has prepared humanity with general revelation. General revelation then comes through observing nature and through seeing God's directing influence in history and through an inner sense of God's existence and his laws that he has placed inside every person. Now this is evident even in society, just normal society apart from witnessing. Again, Wayne Grudem. The fact that all people know something of God's moral laws is a great blessing for society. For unless they did, there would be no societal, societal restraint on the evil that people would do and no restraint from their consciences. Because there is some common knowledge of right and wrong, Christians can often find much consensus with non-Christians in matter of civil law, community standards, basic ethics for business and professional activity, and acceptable patterns of conduct in ordinary life. Moreover, we can appeal to the sense of rightness within people's hearts when attempting to enact better laws or overturn bad laws or to right some other injustices in society around us. Now that's good news because you and I are called to be witnesses. Note the word. We're called to be witnesses of God's righteousness. And we're called to uphold a certain standard. We are called to be salt and we're called to be light. And the presence of the church in the world is one of the restraining forces against evil. And so it is possible to reason even with the unredeemed according to what is right. And we need to be engaged in that. We cannot be disengaged from the political realm. 
We cannot be disengaged from the debates concerning our schools. We cannot be disengaged as to what should be allowable and disallowable at work. We should not be disengaged when it comes to the rights or the denial of rights of certain groups. But we must be engaged and acting according to the moral character of God and trusting in his general revelation for us to occupy until he comes. But general revelation, as useful as it is, as great as it is, as pervasive as it is, is not enough to bring men and women to salvation. It's not enough to bring men and women to salvation because we are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8, and faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. So then there is the necessity that God's revelation becomes progressive. Progressing from general revelation to what is called special revelation. Special revelation is this. It's the revelation of God in words. It refers to God's words addressed to specific people, such as the words of the Bible, the words of the Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles, the words of God spoken in personal address, such as Mount Sinai, the baptism of Jesus. It refers to Jesus' words that aren't recorded, so on and so forth. It's God's revelation to humanity about himself through the medium of words. Now, Psalm 19 that we just read speaking about general revelation, also rejoices in and speaks about special revelation, starting in verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than fine gold. Yes, than much fine gold. They're sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, thy servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So general revelation tells us that there is a God that he's a powerful creator, and that he has a moral character. But then it is only through special revelation, the word of God, that the soul is restored, that we are made wise, that our hearts rejoice, that our eyes are enlightened, that we are made clean and righteous, that we are warned through special revelation. So we have the revelation of God in nature, general, the revelation of God in scripture, and I like what Charles Spurgeon says about the two. He says, he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. God's revelation. Now, throughout history, Bit by bit, piece by piece, in many ways and methods. God has used both general and special revelation to communicate his love and his truths to humanity. God spoke the word to Moses at Sinai in thunder and lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. God whispered his word to Elijah and Mount Horeb in a still small voice. God spoke his word to Ezekiel by visions. God spoke his word to Daniel through dreams. God appeared to Abraham in human form, but to Jacob as an angel. 
And God has declared himself by law, by warning, by exhortation, by type, and by parable. And then as our text says, God has also used the prophets to give revelation. And when the prophets were used by God, the prophets found themselves using almost every method imaginable to communicate God's truths. The prophet Amos gave direct oracles from God. Malachi used question and answers. Ezekiel performed bizarre symbolic acts. Haggai just preached sermons, God bless him. And Zechariah employed mysterious signs. And so God's revelation to humanity was progressive. First general and then special. And the two together allowed God's people to do wonderful things according to God's will. R. Ken Hughes says, through God's cosmic, that is general, and prophetic, that is special, eloquence or revelation, men and women rose to live life on the highest plane. Abraham achieved the faith to offer his own son. Moses withstood Pharaoh through mighty miracles. David slew Goliath. Daniel achieved and maintained massive integrity in Babylon. But in all of this, its adequacy, its progressiveness, its continuity and its power, God's eloquence was never complete. As grand as it was, it was nevertheless fragmentary and lacking. Returning to our text, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation. It was fragmentary. It was incomplete. It was not finished until Jesus was revealed. F.F. Bruce, whom you should read, commenting on this, said, Priest and prophet, sage and singer, were in their several ways his spokesmen. Yet all the successive acts and varying modes of revelation in the ages before Christ came did not add up to the fullness of what God wanted to say. Only when Jesus came on the scene, only when God draped himself in humanity could the fullness of God's heart be expressed. Creation alone couldn't speak it. Words could not describe. Only Jesus himself. General revelation is good, special is good. But Jesus is the fullness of all God ever wanted to communicate to the universe. Jesus explains God for us. It's only in the person of Christ that all these things make sense. I want to end by looking at two verses in John 1. Go to John 1 if you would. And we'll end right here. John 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, King James says son, there's some manuscript differences, it's talking about Jesus. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. 
In essence, nobody has ever gotten God fully until Jesus came, who is the ultimate revelation of who God is to humanity. Jesus has explained him to you and I. That word explained in the Greek, exegeomai. Exegeomai. It's where we get our word exegesis. Exegesis means to lead out the meaning of something. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He leads out, he reveals, he explains, he unfolds for you and I who God is. In the incarnation, Jesus did that. Jesus is the exegesis, the explanation of who God is. And what was made known, what was communicated to humanity through Jesus Christ, the previous verse, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The final revelation of God to humanity is grace and truth. And they are made evident in and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final and full revelation of God because he is God. And when God gave us Jesus, God gave us himself. Behold, unto us a child has been born. He's a mighty God. He's a Prince of Peace. He's the everlasting Father. He's a wonderful counselor. Jesus Christ is God giving himself to us. And I tell you, people, we're blessed. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Jesus said to his disciples and to you and I, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. And Peter said, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which have now been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen, things into which angels long to look. It says in Timothy that when Jesus was born, the angels gawked. That God was given to humanity. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. And in the weeks to come, in the verses to come of Hebrews chapter one, we'll see just what Jesus communicates about our great God and savior. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for giving us you, for pursuing us. Thank you, Jesus, that you stepped down out of darkness. Actually, you stepped out of heaven and into darkness, Lord. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you pursue. Thank you that you have revealed the Father to us. And we ask that you'd manifest all the glory of God in our midst now. We ask the Holy Spirit you'd come upon us 
as we seek to enthrone Jesus Christ. We want to see you, Jesus, high and exalted. You are the King. You are the great and awesome God and Savior. We want to exalt you now. Thank you that you came and revealed. Would you come here now to an even greater degree, manifest yourself in our midst? We long for your presence and reveal all the wonders of our God to us. Come, Lord Jesus.